podcast listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluk. Today it is Tuesday, April 4th, 2023, and I'm joined via Zoom by retired Lieutenant General Dan Leaf, who is in Hawaii, uh, to talk about ending the Korean War. But first, please, a request and a reminder to leave a review about this episode on whatever platform you use and to share it with anyone you think should hear it or who might be interested. What's more, like and subscribe to the whole series. Secondly, check out nknews.org, where each day my journalist colleagues write the best North Korea-focused journalism. A subscription for a year costs less than a dollar a day, which helps to fund the excellent reporting that my colleagues do, as well as this podcast. Thirdly, you can follow nknews.org on Twitter and me at JackoZ. Now, to introduce my guest today, Lieutenant General Dan Leaf is a retired three-star general and Air Force fighter pilot and former deputy commander of the U.S. Pacific Command. His 2017 essay, An Urgently Practical Approach to the Korean Peninsula, won the Oslo Forum's first ever Peace Writer Prize. You can find Dan on Twitter at FigLeaf31 and online at thinktechhawaii.com. We'll share both those links in the show notes. Thank you for coming on the show. Welcome on the show, Lieutenant General Dan Leaf. Jacko, it's great to hear your voice. Heard it so many times on podcasts, and I'm honored to have the chance to share some ideas with you and your listeners. Thank you. Yeah, long-time listener, first-time caller, as they say. There you go. Uh, first of all, could you tell us a brief nutshell summary of your military career and where that intersects with Korea, uh, and then how, uh, and then when and how you separated from the military? I was a fighter pilot, basically, F-4, F-15, F-16, flew combat missions in the F-15 and F-16, a lot of time in the Pacific, including four years and two assignments in Korea, first as a young lieutenant slash captain back in the 70s, and then as a colonel at Yongsan at, at the headquarters of U.S. Forces Korea in 95 to 97. So the pilot took me to duties in Korea and uh, did a few other things, flew combat during the Kosovo War as a wing commander. And uh, throughout that, I think Jack... Jacko, the thing to emphasize is my career took me through a lot of the nuclear enterprise, more than anybody else I know, because mm. I was a certified nuke strike pilot as a lieutenant and as a wing commander, I was responsible for storage and maintenance of nuclear weapons at Air Force Space Command as a three-star. I oversaw ICBM operations. And then at PACOM, of course, you have the unique strategic level decision-making responsibilities. So a lot of time in the Pacific, um, including Hawaii. Korea, four years in Japan, and deeply embedded in the nuclear enterprise. Okay. And when did you retire from the military? 2008. Retirement being a figure of speech that doesn't work for me because I've ah. continued to be pretty busy since then. But I retired here in Hawaii, went back and worked for Northrop Grumman uh, in the U.S. for a few years, and then returned to Hawaii and government service to be the director of the Daniel K. Inouye Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies for three years or for five years. And now I'm just a general community annoyance and consultant. <laughs> I, uh, I understand there was a time in 2007 when you almost became commander of United States Forces Korea. Can you tell us about that? That's true. We probably a signature way is a good way to describe it. My mm -hmm. boss at the time Admiral Keating at PACOM and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mullen, were putting my name forward to be the commander, the first ever Air Force commander. And it got close to that outcome. But as Secretary Gates wrote his book, the Army convinced him it would be a mistake to put an Air Force guy, not me, I don't think he had any 
heartburn with me mm. in the job because the Koreans understood army people and only an army officer could get the transfer of operational control to closure. <laughs> We're not there yet. Uh, but things happen point. for a reason, and right. here I am. So okay. it is what it is. Okay, so to this day, uh, USFK commander is a, a U.S. Army billet, is it not? It is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not. it doesn't have to be, but it has been. Right, okay. So it's it's more tradition than, than law, as it were. Mm, conventional wisdom, conventional which wisdom. isn't always wise. Right. But there you go. Now, over the last five years of me doing this podcast, we've had some guests from the U.S. military, uh, often retired folks, and also from the wider security establishment. But you're a little different, Dan, because you're actively advocating for ending the Korean War, aren't you? I am. Um, I think it's about time. 70 years in July. I was, I'm was. i an old man, and mm -hmm. I was 11 months old when the armistice was signed. Gosh. Come on. Yeah. Well, you recently had an op-ed published in the New York Times on uh, March 29th, so just a few days ago, under the title, I know how nuclear war is waged, so I'm calling for peace with North Korea. Uh, and in this piece, you describe yourself as a, a nuclear warrior and, and say that you know how to wage nuclear war. Uh, given that a nuclear weapon hasn't been used in anger since August 1945, what does that mean in practice? Well, it means in practice that there are several scenarios, there are several nuclear nations that could launch a nuclear attack and some nascent ones like Iran. But the most dangerous case is North Korea, because mm. even in Russia, Ukraine or China, Taiwan, U.S., those would take some some significant steps of escalation and misunderstanding and all the things that lead to war to, to go nuclear. But in the case of North Korea, with the delivery systems, the weapons, and a leader who now has legal authority to launch a preemptive strike, all it takes in North Korea is one bad decision, one bad day in Pyongyang, mm -hmm. and we could have nuclear war. And I don't think that's a good thing. And I believe that the first step to walking back from that is to end the actual war itself. Okay, so what, what is the, uh, the central thesis of your op-ed? How do we do that? Well, my central thesis has long been end the war, because if every news story starts with technically still at war, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's a pretty big stumbling block to making progress. And it's proven to be a big stumbling block for 70 years and especially 30 years where nuclear weapons have been an issue. But I came upon, thanks to uh, an organization you've had on this uh, podcast before, Women Cross DMZ, mm. the existence of a draft bill, a bill in Congress, House Resolution 1369, the peace on the Korean Peninsula Act, and sort of had an epiphany that this is the step to provide impetus to a formal and sustained pursuit of a peace treaty with North Korea that maybe is exactly what we need. And how would it work? Would it simply be the United States uh, declaring the end of the war? Well, it, it isn't that simple. And you know that, uh, because I know you, you're, you're well versed in all the complexities. <laughs> but it's a starting point that could, first of all, give make it a sustained effort, as I said, that crosses, if necessary, administrations and political ups and downs and provides a construct for peacemaking. And, and then we have to figure out 
the details of that? Is it done in concert with the Republic of Korea or others? Is it a unilateral declaration? I think not. I think that's a, a, a bad idea because mm. it doesn't really change anything. But the mechanics of all that would have to be sorted out. And that brings me to one of the many things that I hear from the doubting Thomases of the, the world who say, well, you know, sorting all that out would be really difficult. My answer is always going to be not as difficult as nuclear war. Okay, so when you come up with something that's mm -hmm. harder than nuclear war, let me know and I'll, I'll relent. Yeah, okay. it's, it's difficult. But this bill could give us a construct and a mandate to pursue a peace treaty. And without that, I don't think we're getting anywhere, not just on denuclearization, but also on the humanitarian issues of human rights and the, the abject privation of the people of North Korea, which is as much a motivation to me as the threat of nuclear war. It makes my heart hurt. I got the feeling from your op-ed that you want the U.S. to take the lead in this. Is that right? Well, we should because we're the lead signature on the armistice. And, and it is complicated because clearly our allies, the Republic of Korea, have more than vested interest in mm -hmm. a role to play. And we can argue perhaps that Japan, Russia, Korea, that all of the six-party talks do, but we signed it. North Korea signed it. Some Chinese volunteers signed it. I'm going to be a little dismissive of the presence of the Chinese People's Volunteers signature on the armistice because it doesn't have the meaning of the United Nations and mm. the sovereign nation of North Korea. They didn't have the status of a nation. So this is really to some degree mm -hmm. between the United Nations Command, which was a UN-led coalition, not or a US, I'm sorry, led coalition, not really a UN organization, and the in North Korea. Those those two key signatures, General William K. Harrison Jr. and General Nam Il, who've now been dead, by the way, I think uh, fifty and forty years respect, forty and fifty years respectively. They right. got to be rolling over their graves in that we haven't solved this yet. The um, uh, North Korea uh, famously withdrew from both the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and announced its in uh, its withdrawal from the armistice agreement by my count at least six times in 1994 mm -hmm. 96 mm -hmm. 2003 2006 2009 and 2013 does that uh, is that an obstacle to what you're suggesting well we've withdrawn from parts of it and so there are plenty of ob there there are plenty of obstacles i'd have to look at the specific article 12d i think uh, one on introducing new weapons to the Peninsula, we said that doesn't matter anymore because mm -hmm. of the, at that time, of the buildup of a North Korean jet air force. Mm. So I don't think it's important to the fact that we are technically still at war and we will be not just because of the armistice, but without a peace treaty. So this is much more about the formal peacemaking of a treaty than it is about the specifics of the armistice. And I'm interested in your vision for peace on the Korean Peninsula, what it would look like. Uh, for example, in, your, in the most likely outcome, would there be two nuclear-armed Korean states living side by side? Jesus, I hope not. I, I have to be that pithy in my response, because that would mean we have one more nuclear-armed state, mm. and, I'm, I'm, and I'm not in favor of that. I, th I think that as 
difficult and some would say unlikely is denuclearization of North Korea is certainly in the short term because of the importance of the NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, globally, not mm -hmm. just in Northeast Asia, that that still has to be the goal or one of the goals we're pursuing. So I wouldn't like expanding that to right. nuclear weapons held by South Korea. There's still the U.S. nuclear umbrella, et cetera. My, my vision is not about that. It's about two Koreas, that are two parts of Korea, and you can argue unification or not, mm -hmm. but that as they are currently only without the state of war. And certainly that would lead to changes in the construct of the DMZ and Panmunjom and maybe the Northern Limit Line and the maritime boundaries. But the most important thing is that we take away the, the stigma and the impediment of being still at war. And then we get to reconciliation. And that's another part of it, because unlike almost every other case in U.S. history, we haven't even tried to do the tough work of reconciliation with North Korea and contrast that with Vietnam and and please join me in shaking my head and wondering, how can we not understand this, the importance of that process? Mm. I've waged war in the air and on the ground and been to many countries that have been through conflict, internal and external. You've got to close it out with reconciliation or you're doomed to continued strife and turmoil and everything else. In an early draft of your op-ed that I had the good fortune to read, you wrote that, quote, the formal establishment of a permanent peace is a prerequisite to any real progress on denuclearization or human rights for North Korea. And I wonder if that isn't putting the cart before the horse. What I mean is, how is it possible to formally establish any kind of permanent peace when the two Koreas still do not officially recognize the existence and legitimacy of the government on the other side? And while both in their um, constitutions want a unification that in practice means one of the two systems must fail and disappear from the earth. Yes, it is complex. And the cart, the horse, the chicken, the egg, all, you can um, noodle through all this and come to it's impossible. But how can it be impossible after 70 years? And the, the goal is to simplify it to we're going to say we're at peace. From there, we'll deal with these the constitutional issues, with the structural issues, and military demarcation line, the DMZ, et cetera. We'll, we'll deal with all that, but until we first say in writing mm -hmm. that we're at peace, not war, time has shown we're not getting anywhere uh, because we haven't gotten anywhere. But, uh, and I should tell you that part of my passion for this is, is anger management. This makes me mad that we, the human race, and especially my country, which I love and defended for 33 and a half years, hasn't done a better job of getting to a better place. And in fact, we're in a much worse place because of the nuclear risk. We're in a much worse place because while we're not to blame, we are to some degree complicit in the suffering of North Korean people. It's not our fault, but we're not helping. Well, my uh, next question, I have to read a, uh, a section from the published version of your, uh, your op-ed. Mm -hmm. uh, you write, a permanent peace agreement would undermine Mr. Kim's portrayal of the United States as an existential threat 
and his justification for building up his conventional and nuclear arsenal. It could also short-circuit the siege mentality underlying his repressive regime. Sanctions relief and economic development could follow, leading to long-hoped-for improvements in the quality of life and human rights for North Korea's 25 million people, end quote. Now, I'm wondering, isn't that precisely the reason why a permanent peace agreement with the United States might be at the very least awkward and at the very worst destabilizing for Kim Jong-un? Because without the external threat of the United States and the heightened state of military readiness that comes from it, the citizens of North Korea might have the space to think about improving things in their country, like maybe having a better system of government. Well, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. But that isn't reason enough not to do it. The, my inspiration for writing this particular essay came from a paper from the Institute of Public Policy by several people I really respect that suggested if we change from focusing on denuclearization to emphasizing human rights, we would inspire tumult and in the populace and the collapse of the Kim regime, which I think is extraordinarily unlikely. There are a lot of unknowns, but in this case, if we don't try, we don't know. And we have been stuck in a paradigm where we are scared away from the risk-taking of difficult discussions by the unlikelihood that they'll work. That doesn't mean we ought not pursue peace. And I think we need to get back to the other part of my motivation on this. We need the structure of a legal mandate, this House resolution, we need a Senate version of it as well, and we need bipartisan support that will sustain the pursuit of peace through all of this difficulty. And in the end, my view is that weighing the options, it can be made the best option for North Korea, for the Republic of Korea, and for the United States. The, uh, the Korean War Armistice Agreement, signed in July 1953, has held for 70 years this year. And yes, it is a dated document. It was certainly never meant to last that long. But I wonder what exactly is wrong with it? Surely until the two Koreas work out their differences politically, isn't the Armistice Agreement the best way to maintain the current state of not actively fighting each other? Well, that was the stated purpose in the preamble, right? Mm. But it also said that we're going to fix this eventually. You know, it is it, its objective was establishing an armistice, and I'm reading now, which will ensure a complete cessation of hostilities. We've kind of done that, my emphasis added, if you will, and of all acts of armed forces in Korea, okay, armed force in Korea, well, we've kind of avoided that until a final peaceful settlement is achieved. So, yes, we stopped shooting each other on a regular basis in a Cold War construct that existed 70 years ago. In the interim, South Korea flourished and North Korea suffered by their own fault. Mm. And that doesn't make this good. It doesn't, it doesn't make the armistice necessary to find a better future. And in fact, having the armistice and not a peace agreement is a, ma a major impediment. And by Removing that impediment, make, maybe we'll make real progress. What I'm proposing is not the solution, it's a start. 
why do you see the uh, situation as being so urgent now? Is it simply because North Korea has uh, nuclear weapons and, uh, and and has talked about using them and also has potentially a, uh, a successful delivery vehicle to bring it to the continental United States? Well, wherever they might bring it, it, it would be bad because it would be nuclear war. Yes, they might bring it to the United States, the mainland and Hawaii. And of course, in January of 2018, we had that scare of the false alarm. I think the all of that presents a serious nuclear threat, and it's the comparison to other nuclear threats that compels me to take to the podium and tout the need for resolution now. We are so worried about things that are less urgent. They're not less important necessarily, but Russia, Ukraine, yeah, we could we could that could degenerate as mm. could china us taiwan that could degenerate over time as i said earlier we are one bad decision away in north korea from nuclear war i i think that's bad and i think we should do something about it the um let's talk a bit about the peace on the korean peninsula act that uh is before yeah. the united states congress um so if you could remind us again, sketch out for us, what does it actually propose? Well, it proposes uh, two things that really highlights. The first is um, to review current restrictions on travel to North Korea and mm -hmm. then call for a formal end to the Korean War and, and for other purposes. That's in the heading of House Resolution 1369. It's my view and I've talked to some on Representative Sherman, the, the sponsor staff, it's a little bit of pandering to Korean-American diaspora who are also constituents. Ah, that certainly explains the first part, the review on yeah, the travel so, ban, which has been in place since Otto Warmbier's death. But that doesn't mean it's without merit. Mm -hmm. And it calls for the state to, uh, Secretary of State to report on efforts to end the Korean War. I think it needs to be significantly strengthened and expanded. And the expansion is also, conversely, a limitation to what we might negotiate. It should say, here's where we're going. We are going to a peace agreement with North Korea, in concert with the ROK or not. I, I mean, that's a legislative nuance, how much you include in it. But so is, is the act vague on that? It's quite vague so far. Right. And and I don't think, as currently written, it has any chance of passing. And it's got one Republican out of 19 co-sponsors, and we need bipartisan support. And I'll come sure. back to that in a second. Um, but it can provide guidelines. We're not going to talk about the ROC-US uh, alliance or the withdrawal of US troops or whatever. We are going to talk about a peace treaty. We should talk about normalization of maritime boundaries. That's a something that isn't that that's just not right with the aftermath of the armistice. Kind of an arcane topic, but important. Uh, and we might talk about this, but very narrowly limited. And why do I say that? Mm. So that our negotiators can go to wherever. I'd recommend Vietnam because because I think that's an ideal interlocutor. I wish our First Trump-Kim summit had been there mm. because they know us both. Um, and when we sit down with the North Koreans, then they say, we want to talk about this. Sorry, we can't. It's this thing called law. And 
That comes from my experience, both as a military and civilian government official, working with the Chinese and finding um, top cover in the Taiwan Relations Act. When my Chinese counterparts from the PLA or elsewhere would say, oh, why are you selling defensive arms to Taiwan? <laughs> I'd say, well, you have tens of thousands of steep people um, studying political science in the US. You might ask them because it's the law. Mm -hmm. Okay, so don't go there. And the the problem with discussions with North Korea is there's always been a, a new grenade thrown in the room and, and having the legal mandate, but also restriction in what we talked about doesn't guarantee success, but it improves the likelihood. And why should this be, if I may go on a bit, mm. why should this be something politically acceptable? And, and you know, I'm a fighter pilot, so I am prone to hyperbole, but I don't think this is hyperbole. This is not a red or blue elephant or donkey or any other issue. For our uh, non-American listeners, uh, you're talking yeah, about you. the Republican yeah. and Democratic parties. Thank you. Yes, exactly. It's about, okay, are you for or against nuclear war? Hmm, I'm against. Are you for or against unnecessary human suffering? Hmm, I'm against. All right, then you should support the pursuit of peace on the Korean Peninsula. It really is that simple, but we tend to overcomplicate it. And we have a non-compliant, non-cooperative counterpart or hmm. not opponent in this pursuit. So what? We've been to the moon. We thought about going to the moon after the armistice was signed, and we've gone there and come hmm. back. And we can't solve this? Come on, man. It, this is anger management for me. Yeah. <laughs> it is absurd that we're still in this dark place. Um, over the decades, there have been times when you know, there were moves towards something like this. I mean, I remember uh, when President Jimmy Carter talked about removing mm -hmm. troops from the U.S., uh, from, from South Korean territory. And I know that, th that through the decades and also during President Trump's administration, South Korea has been nervous about being shut out of uh, of some kind of a deal, and and don't forget that as as well as one of the the parties in this uh, this war, of course, South Korea. Uh, I don't need to remind you, but for our listeners, it's a U.S. treaty ally. Uh, so how right. how can this proceed without the danger of of shutting South Korea out at least at the beginning stages? That reemphasizes the importance of a legal management uh, mandate from legislation from this bill, because if we have to do it, if we have to work towards peace, then to be successful, we will need cooperation, consultation, interaction with South Korea. But South Korea will also know that we are mandated to do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the ebbs and flows of the vibrant democracy in South Korea and the ebbs and flows of our own democracy make it really difficult a law that says this is where we're going will provide stability and continuity to the effort. And when you look at the role of the Taiwan Relations Act, I really do think it's analogous in that even though we call it strategic ambiguity, it's mm -hmm. given us a constant in our dealing with the complexities of China-U.S. relations and the one-China policy, but our support for Taiwan. So I, th I think this will help in all regards. Mm. 
you write in your op-ed that the uh, piece on the Korean Peninsula Act is not perfect, that it would require the Secretary of State to submit a report that describes a clear roadmap for achieving a permanent peace mm -hmm. agreement on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, why would you leave that to the Department of State? It's not often to see a military person, even a retired one, put so much faith in Foggy Bottom. <laughs> well, somebody's got to do it. And I do have faith in our diplomats because I worked with them for so many years. But we ah. do what we're told. And, and the State Department does what they're told in a different way than the military does what yeah. they're told. But we both are servants of our government. And given a legal mandate, a law that says go do this, we're really inclined to go do that. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a State Department-led effort or anything else, I also say uh, in the article that, that establishing a military liaison offices is a is a good idea. Mm. But you know, I don't care who leads it; just lead it and get it done. And I have faith in our diplomats. Yes, yeah, just picking up from that last point there, you write also that the uh, Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act lacks, quote, other steps necessary to entrench peace, such mm -hmm. as the process for U.S.-North Korean reconciliation, normalization of disputed maritime boundaries, and a framework for talks between the opposing military forces, uh, end quote. Now, I, I think nobody disagrees that these would be good things and laudable aims, but I'm just wondering how they would be achieved. Do you have a, a specific well, vision for that? When they become law, they have to be achieved and people have to figure it out. Mm. That's the beauty of it. So I I can't, I could speculate, but it would be fairly meaningless to say, well, this is how it will happen. Right. I don't know how it would happen, but if the law says it must happen, it's yeah. far more likely to than if it is a temporary policy measure of one secretary or undersecretary or even president in our government making a matter of laws what makes it achievable. It's really about having a law to provide the impetus that sort of to be the galvanizer to get it done rather than to actually lay out how it should be done. That's how I understand exactly. it. Is that right? Yeah, with some how it should be done in terms of the structure, the limits to keep it right. um, so from becoming yet another Gordian knot that we can't untie. Um, let's talk a bit about history here. My understanding of what went wrong in Hanoi four years ago in February 2019 is that both President Trump and Chairman Kim wanted to make a deal that included some type of U.S.-North Korea reconciliation and bringing North Korea into the fold of nations, but that their requirements for these things were mutually exclusive. What's your take on what went wrong in Hanoi? Well, I wasn't there, so my take is of limited value, but um, that is very plausible. And I think the emphasis on reconciliation is very important. You know, we have, as I said earlier, we've never done that. I've been to conflict and former conflict zones. I've worked extensively with Vietnam in both the military and civilian government role on our own reconciliation and been to Nepal and Sri Lanka and East Timor and sadly Myanmar. And so I've had a good... and not to mention my combat experience in Iraq and Kosovo. Mm. So I had a good look at what works and doesn't post-conflict. And the fact that 70 years later, we haven't addressed the hard issues as we did with the Vietnamese of the war is a major re reason we haven't gotten anywhere. You know, the, uh, we did bomb the ever-living crap out of North Korea. And Google it, folks. 
uh, I won't give you the numbers, but it was an incredible level of destruction. They committed atrocities and have um, provided enough provocations to to make a movie of. Mm. So we're still up, we're still mad, right? Until you get past that through something called truth and reconciliation, you're not at peace. So even if we get an agreement, we then have to do the really tough stuff. With Vietnam, we talked about three really tough issues for them, Agent Orange and its after effects, certainly their after effects on American service members, mm. unexploded ordnance, and for us, prisoners and missing in action, the unaccounted for. That was not easy, um, but we did it. We have to, we Americans and North Koreans alike and South Koreans have to look each other in the eye and get to a better place, which sounds very Pollyannic. I'm not a Pollyannic. <laughs> I don't think anybody would call me that, but you have to do it. And as you go through the truth and reconciliation process, there's a, usually an evolution from more truth to less truth to more reconciliation, to understanding from the hard truths that what matters for our children and grandchildren is the reconciliation. When I work in much of Asia, I hear a, a lot about Confucius, who I didn't know personally. I'm almost old enough. But my response is always that we do not honor our ancestors by sacrificing the future of our children and grandchildren. And what's so hard to understand about that? This has to be future-focused. In, in 2018, at the Singapore summit, uh, yeah. President Trump laid out some kind of a, a vision for reconciliation mm -hmm. when he showed that video to uh, to Chairman Kim about uh, you know the kind of investment and uh, and, and uh, flourishing that North Korea could experience if the two countries were to uh, to move forward and to reconcile. Did you get the sense that President Trump was also interested in an end of war declaration? I know that President Moon here in South Korea was. Yeah. What was President Trump's uh, view on that? He didn't ask me, so I don't know. And uh, <laughs> and I didn't talk to him before or after the indictment, which is kind of the current news. So I, I can't guess, but it's, it felt like it. It felt like things will we be better for both sides when we're not at war. And there's nothing simple about being not at war. But the simple truth is things will, in fact, be better doesn't solve every problem that either country or the South Koreans have. But how can things not be better when we're not at war? Given that North Korea has uh, at the moment shown no inclination to talk to either the United States or to South Korea, uh, and that's been the way since, uh, since late mm -hmm. 2020, what would be the first step in, in getting them to answer the phone, do you think? Hi, I'm Joe Smith. I'm the Secretary of State. And I have to talk to you because the law says I have to talk to you. Or I'm knocking on a door at the delegation of the United Nations saying, hey, this, the law says we have to talk. So that legal mandate that forces the pursuit of contact isn't, like I said, it's not going to deliver instant uh, rainbows, but it's a start. But North and, Korea doesn't particularly care what the American law says. I mean, I know the... Uh, the, the no, the, you're right. Yeah, I'm not in I'm not implying that the North Koreans will well, if it's US law, then <laughs> obviously we have to talk. No, it's the fact that we have mandated persistence, that it's something the US government has to officially pursue. And we have to officially pursue 
even after phones are slammed down. Well, they don't do that anymore mm. because of cell phones, but yeah. or after doors are slammed, which they do still do, that we have to keep trying that will change the paradigm. I'm interested in, in hearing how your ideas about peace in Korea have been received by your former colleagues in the military, either those currently serving or retired like yourself. You know, I, this will sound self-serving, and I'm not above being self-serving, but in this case, I'm not. I have frankly been surprised at the number of responses, because I did um, send this out to many of my current former colleagues and friends and and so on, uh, who have responded with a theme that I would summarize is, as I couldn't agree more. Hmm. Couldn't agree more. Now, there are differences. Some say this means we could get our forces out of South Korea. I'm not mm. for that. Or this means that or whatever. But the key theme in my responses from active duty and former senior leaders, generals, admirals, has been, I couldn't agree more. Mm. So I'm encouraged by that. And how long have you been saying this? This particular about the law, only a month. Ah. The the rest of it, mm -hmm. since I wrote that Oslo forum. No, back in 2017. Paper, yeah, back in 2017. Mm. And and it is an obsession, and it, it is partly from nuclear war. But I, I have to give some credit to Barbara Demick, the author of... Mm. Um, nothing to Envy. Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Life in North Korea, which I have goosebumps, or as we call them in Hawaii, chicken skin, even mentioning it right now. Mm. And I know how controversial narratives from the North are, but that stayed with me. I am haunted by the vision of what it must be like to be a North Korean, yeah. an ordinary North Korean. That goes to bed with me every night. And as an, as an American, I can't just sit here and do nothing. I can't. I just can't stand the notion that someday we'll peel back that onion and Mm. see how truly horrible it was. And I, I did nothing. Can't live with it. So here I am. I'm guessing that these are not ideas that you had when you were still in the military. Does that mean you've had a change of heart uh, since retirement? Absolutely not. No, this is part of my my life in the military. I flew combat missions. And yeah, and I killed people, folks, just so you know, mm. in combat. And that was my job. And um, and I think it was the right thing at the time, but it has made me reflect a lot about nuclear conflict and about conventional conflict and the taking of human life. Um, and that's part of it. So I'm not a reluctant warrior. Mm -hmm. I just think in many cases, there's a better way. And in this case, that better way is absolutely essential. Do you think that if you had become USFK commander in 2007, that uh, you'd still have uh, reached the same conclusions on making peace with North Korea that you hold today? Uh, Jacko, you're asking me to make a counterfactual supposition, one of my favorite phrases. So who yes. knows? Um, now, I'm just wondering whether there's a certain yeah. kind of path dependency it, here. That, it, was, you know. it was already there. Uh, I had some discussions with my boss at Paycom about mm -hmm. things we might do that, that weren't totally radical, but also work conventional. And I think that's part of why he liked the idea. Look, can I give you a different, uh, can I tell one more story? Sure. And I think it will, 
illustrate it. Maybe this really started with first reading Nothing Denby, and then in um, August of 2007, I don't know if you recall, there was severe flooding in the southeastern third of North Korea. Mm. Very severe flooding, flooding, as often happens in monsoon season. And I went into an intelligence brief, the daily kind of update, and saw images of washed out roads and bridges in isolated communities. It was really pretty awful, mm -hmm. as if living in North Korea wasn't awful enough. And I said out loud, maybe we could drop food to these folks. And everybody looked at me like, oh, the deputies totally lost it. Mm -hmm. That was the deputy commander, Pacific command. But Jacko, the, the notion was we had done humanitarian ration, rations drops in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. in Iraq, in post-earthquake, in Pakistan, and we we're really quite good at it. And these were people that needed feeding. Because they they needed feeding anyway, but even yeah. more so now. So yeah. I said to my boss, uh, Admiral Keating, we could do this. And what do you think? He said, I'll, I'll take a breath and let you say, what do you think? What do you think my four-star boss said when I proposed this? Well, I don't recall it going ahead. So I'm guessing he said maybe that's not the best idea right now. Now he said, you got it. Uh, I'm leaving on a trip. Call the Secretary of Defense. Hmm. <laughs> Gee, thanks, boss. Great boss, Admiral Tim Keating. Um, and so I, I tried to call the Secretary of Defense. I got his three-star military assistant instead. Yeah. And because the secretary was not in, in at the time, it was a matter of timing. And he said, well, that's interesting. And by this time, the erstwhile staff at PACOM had sorted out that this was feasible, that we mm. could get rations, we could get them in C-17s, and we could get them to this part of North Korea. And that this is that third, that lower southeastern third is the least military significant, militarily significant part. So we thought we could do it. Um, I mean, the practically it's feasible, but wouldn't that require uh, the permission of North Korea to fly over their airspace? Exactly. So my point was, and part of the motivation was, we we approach North Korea and say, dudes. We have some food for you. You need food. No, no strings, no mm -hmm. American flags on the boxes, no public announcement. We're just going to do the right thing and help your people eat. Mm -hmm. And I pictured um, Kim Jong-il's head exploding at mm. that notion. And just, or, wow, this is a paradigm, paradigm changer. If he refused, we then have justification under the responsibility to protect that notion that nations, governments have a responsibility responsibility to their own people mm -hmm. to take further actions against North Korea, including enforced humanitarian assistance. If they accept, holy moly, it's a brave new world, mm. right? Imagine, just imagine that. In the course of the deliberations, one of the folks in the White House, because it did get to the National Security Council, mm -hmm. called me up and said, so, Fig, if they say no, would you fight your way into, you know, would you make an opposed entry to deliver this food? My response, which was unrealistic but morally important, was we fight our way in to kill people. Why wouldn't we fight our way in to feed them? Mm. Now, it didn't work out because... It's a bureaucracy, and there is a statutory. This is where why I 
am so aware of the importance of law in matters of national security, there's a statutory prohibition against Department of Defense assistance to North Korea of any kind. Mm. So we couldn't get past that. Maybe we could have, but we didn't. And by then, the crisis passed and the opportunity was lost. Mm -hmm. right. but, but imagine. And that's so. Yeah, I'm a in my own mind, I'm still a badass fighter pilot. And if somebody asked me to go fly a, com, a combat sortie in a, a just conflict, put me in, coach. Okay, I'm a little old, might not yeah. do as well. But but I am as aggressive about peace as I am about war. And war should any kind of con any kind of application of lethal force should be the least bad of very bad choices, not mm. the first resort. Have you received any responses or reactions from other people in the U.S. government outside the military? Um, not to, yet. To your op-ed? Yeah, not yet. You know, it's been about a week, and uh, there has been there have been other things in the news. Uh, I would say that I have gotten only one seriously negative uh, "you're an idiot" response on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe I am. Uh, but generally, people are against nuclear war and human suffering, and that's what I'm suggesting we should pursue. Have you sent a, a copy to the DPRK's permanent mission to the United Nations in New York? No, but I think Christine Ahn, my, my mm -hmm. new friend from uh, Women Across DMZ, and we, we live on the same island. Right. And only found each other through this effort. But I, she might. Huh. And I've talked to North Koreans. I, don't, I mean, I have a hard time not you know, using pithy fighter pilot language, but hell yeah, I'd talk to them. Anything that will work. Mm. 70 years. Come on, man. Has anyone from the Republic of Korea embassy to the United States said anything uh, as far as you're aware? Not from the embassy. We, of course, have a, a consulate here, mm. and a consul general here whom I know of haven't had a chance to talk, but I've been kind of busy, and I'm sure they are too. Uh, I did get a, a nice, long Facebook message from a retired Air Force officer in the RACAF and a scholar, PhD, card-carrying, you know, mm. thoughtful guy, that was very negative, not in tone or lack of respect, but right. fundamentally disagrees my view is that the disagreements are all are a list of all the reasons we're stuck where we are. Mm. You know, that that because we can't trust the North Koreans, oh, okay, we can't deal with it. Because people are afraid to legitimize an authoritarian dictatorship. No, okay, well, they've only ruled North Korea for 75 years. We could wait for that to change, but probably not probably can't afford to. You know, all of the conventional wisdom that I don't find very wise stands in the way of avoiding nuclear war and improving the human condition for North Koreans, for average North Koreans. So I think we should attack the conventional wisdom and do something different. You uh, you mentioned Christine Ahn a short time ago. So I imagine that peace activists such as Korea Peace Now or Women Cross DMZ would be uh, uh, thrilled with your op-ed. She likes it, uh, and I've really enjoyed getting to know her. We're very different people who approach this from a very different place, mm -hmm. have the same perspective, that peace is better than war, and that 
a problem that hasn't been solved for 70 years in the modern era is absurd. Will you become active in Korea Peace now or another movement? I'm not much of a joiner. You know, I flew single seat fighters for a reason, mm. social skills. Um, but I will absolutely work to promote refinement of this bill, creation of a Senate counterpart bill, and passage and signature into law of the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act. I'll do that. I don't know that it means I'll be part of another uh, of an organization. Uh, yeah. This is my personal crusade, if you will, Jacko. So whatever it takes, this this is going to sustain me for a long time. I could spend the rest of my life enjoying Hawaii or sucking at golf, which I do, but uh -huh. but I'd like to do something more worthwhile. I wonder under what circumstances you can imagine U.S. congressional Democrats and Republicans coming together in agreement to make a uh, a peace agreement with with North Korea. It might it, it sometimes feels that reaching an agreement between the leaders of the North of North Korea and the U.S. might be easier than getting a partisan Congress to agree on uh, on ratifying something like this. Yeah, you could make that case, but um, first of all, I'm not willing to to think that impossible. And secondly, I would make the same argument, and I hope to make the same argument many times to congressional leaders. I have two questions for you. Are you for or against nuclear war? Are you for or against unnecessary human suffering? Okay, that's not your party. That's not your emblem. That's not the color. It's humanity. And it's national security. So you can come at this from the any perspective. And it's a good idea. That's how I see it. Now, I know mm. others won't, but that is how I see it. See, my understanding is that the 1994 agreed framework between the U.S. and North Korea was called that rather than a treaty or an, another kind of agreement precisely to yeah. avoid having to get congressional approval. Well, how'd that work out? And it was the subsequent opposition of Congress to fulfilling the requirements of the agreed framework that 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 and North Korean intransigence, face, uh, frankly, that led to the breakdown of the agreement. So we should learn from that and understand mm. the importance of a legal mandate. And, and for all of this, any of us who say, well, it's too hard. If that's, if that's what's stopping you, shame on you. Yeah, it's hard. It is not as hard, to repeat myself, as nuclear war. It's not as hard as living the life of an ordinary North Korean. Those two are really hard. Yeah, you've, you've come back uh, a few times in our conversation to uh, war being harder than anything else. Um, you've got the, you've set up an opposition of, of war versus peace, but I wonder, are they the only two options available to us? And, and coming back to the armistice, as long as it continues to deter both sides from actual aggression or attacks, then the options might be discussions when they are possible, uh, and maintaining the armistice status quo during times when discussions are not possible for whatever reason, until such time as they become possible again. Well, for the first 40 years of the armistice's existence, maybe that was right. But since then, with the development of the North Korean nuclear program, the trend has been in the wrong direction. The trend has been towards uh, increased possibility of nuclear conflict. So if we were if we were sustaining through the armistice a tolerable stalemate, okay, cool. Yeah, cool. We'll deal with the occasional cross-border incursion or 
submarine lander landing or even seizing an American ship. That's that's all. That's very different than the fact that we are now one bad decision away from nuclear war, and that's why it's it's essential now, as opposed to before, to take action. What's next for you, Dan? How do you plan to move this forward? Are you going to go to Washington? Well, I'm going to Washington uh, this week to meet with the my comrades from the invasion of Iraq. So I have a, uh, you know, that that is part of what motivates me. I was with the land forces as senior airmen during the invasion. Mm. Uh, but I will begin after I return uh, this weekend seeking opportunities to make my case to those who we need now, House of Representatives and Senators here in Hawaii and elsewhere, to ask them to refine and pass this important legislation. Well, I, I wish you all the success with that. Thank you very much for coming on the NK News podcast today, General Dan Leaf. I can see why you've uh, earned the nickname Fig Leaf over the years. Yeah, it is a bit of a statement, I guess. Yeah. Put a fig leaf over war. Uh, listeners can find you online on Twitter at figleaf31, that's figleaf31, or at thinktechhawaii.com, where you produce your own videos. Uh, so uh, I encourage people to check that out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of our podcast episode for today. If you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business, or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access or a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thank you very much and listen again next time. 